Welcome to Innovation Capital, presented by PatSnap. Here on Innovation Capital, we take a fresh, unfiltered look at some of the biggest topics shaping innovation today. Leave everything you know about innovation at the door, because you have now entered a universe where we turn established ideas on their head and ask the questions that fuel great innovation, growth and scalability. This is Innovation Capital. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to episode 12 of the Innovation Capital podcast presented by PatSnap. In today's episode, Ray sits down with George Romanek, who is a shareholder, team leader, and member of the leadership group at Kinney & Lang. He applies his extensive experience as an executive-level in-house intellectual property counsel to offer Kinney & Lang's clients a broad range of advice regarding IP and commercial law, business transactions, and related matters. George has a particular focus on IP protection and portfolio development. Today, George and Ray talk about how to create an innovation culture within a company. It's an absolutely amazing episode. Hope you love it. And without further ado, let's jump right in. Well, George, welcome to Innovation Capital. Really looking forward towards our chat today. And George would love to kick off with just hearing about your backstory and how you started and kind of built your career in the wonderful world of IP, George. Sure, I'm looking forward to to telling you about that. Um, uh, I'm currently a a partner at a a boutique law firm uh, called Kinney & Lang. Uh, We have offices primarily in uh, Minnesota in the the U.S., Um, but we have a few of us who work remotely on a permanent basis. Um, two of us in Connecticut, uh, so on the, the in the northeast of the U.S., and then uh, one in Denver. So, so we're geographically spread out. Um, I've been in the world of IP for um, a long time now. Maybe I'll skip the, the exact number of years, but um, going going back for for a few decades. Um, and, and I was one of the uh, lucky people at this point, from from my perspective who had the opportunity to start as an in-house practitioner. So I um, have an engineering degree, uh, worked in the oil industry for a little bit, went to law school, uh, and then had the opportunity to work for what was then United Technologies Corporation. Uh, started with them as a, uh, as a rookie uh, 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 patent attorney and sort of developed my career from there. Um, over time, I went from that position to working at a couple of businesses of United Technologies. Ultimately, I was the chief IP counsel at uh, Hamilton Sunstrand, which is now part of what's called Collins Aerospace. And then right after that, I was the chief IP counsel at Pratt & Whitney, which is still Pratt & Whitney. And that's part of, um, uh, both of those businesses are now part of Raytheon Technologies, which was formed a year ago when United Technologies merged with Raytheon Company. Um, so that's that was that part. Um, I uh, left Pratt and Whitney about ten years ago, and um, ended up as the chief IP counsel at a specialty chemicals company here in Connecticut um, called uh, Chemtura Corporation. And I was there until that business was purchased by a German company, uh, Lanxis. And um, after that, we parted ways, and I. Um, join Kinney and Lang. Uh, so that's that's my um, overall story. Brilliant. Well, thanks for that overview, George. And, and on a broader context, so taking it back at more of like a, a 30,000 foot overview, I mean, IP as an asset class, obviously we're from the space, so it's kind of near and dear to our heart in terms of its value and its potential. However, we've read reports for years where obviously intangible assets now, I think the 2020 one stat is 90% of the S&P 500, most of their value is derived from intangible assets, patents, trademarks, information software. However, it still seems we haven't crossed a chasm yet on IP being understand, understood at board level and across the C-suite, across more the business and market-facing teams. Why do you think that is? And, and what's the journey ahead in the next eight or nine years of it, of it potentially getting there? What, what do you think are some of the stumbling blocks? And do you think we'll cross the chasm soon? 
That's that's a good question. So so there are some businesses where I'd say they're they're already there, um, and that that would be largely the the companies that rely on IP to support venture capital funding or to support their their valuation in the market. So so you alluded to uh, companies like that. Um, the the companies that are I think still working on it, although there there have been pretty great strides made there, are are the ones that I view as more the um, uh, legacy companies that are large manufacturing organizations. Um, so in part, some of the companies that I had worked for, uh, Collins Aerospace, Pratt Whitney, both in um, the aerospace industry, um, uh, Chemtora in the, the chemical space. And if you, if you go down through, through those areas, the, the, the older businesses, um, it's, it's really a mixed bag. So all of them have had a history of being very strong at obtaining IP rights. But if you work the way up to the C-suite or up to the board level, you may not have seen much of that at all and much more focus on um, uh, questions of how do you deploy capital? Uh, which new products do you want to bring to market? Um, how do you engage with customers? And you know, so more, more traditional sorts of things like that. But that, that has changed also in that um, I, I think now, in part because there's so much emphasis on the value of IP in the financial markets, those questions um, do come up. Uh, so when the financial analysts start talking to people at the C-suite and ask the question, so where are you and um, uh, what does it matter to you? They, they have to have an answer. And then conversely, the um, at the board level, it's pretty impossible to read um, and be conversant in what's going on in the financial markets and not at least have heard of intellectual property. So if you're thinking about how that applies to your company, you know, that would generate at least a question. And, and, and I think that 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 has really generated um, a, a dynamic that is uh, supportive of um, IP generally. Um, and then there's different threads for how that plays out depending on which business you're in and whether you, you have the notion of, um, uh, or you have a business that wants to focus on very proprietary type solutions, or you have a business that wants to focus on more open type solutions or mo more open innovation. And you know, your view of IP, although you're gonna pay attention to it, may be a little bit different um, in those different types of businesses. And, and as an asset class as a whole, we always hear that, magical numbers like actually patents in particular they're well ip as a whole is a trillion dollar asset class but if you still look at last year and this year and even 2019 it's a highly illiquid asset class so only two percent of patents are involved in actually a, a transaction so i think the revenues last year or the year before are around about 180 billion dollars which is really low which is directly two percent of the market where do you think we are on that front in terms of getting some liquidity in, say, the, the patent asset class and getting transactions going and and then having more of a, a, a fiat currency value assigned to a portfolio or an individual patent? Because that still seems quite stagnant. Yeah, so and that's, that's something that's been... Um you know, looked at for a while, there have been a number of businesses and consultants that want to want to talk on that. I'm thinking going back 15 years-ish or so, maybe a little bit longer, um, Ocean Tomo was, was a company that, that uh, worked on setting up a, um, a, a platform to uh, foster the sorts of transactions you're talking about, being able to buy and sell IP rights. Um, and that's had pretty mixed success. They're still in business, and they and they still do that, and they still broker transactions. But I don't think that's really grown to the extent that they they wanted to. And uh, part part of what you you end up with is the situation that uh, oftentimes just a patent by itself um, is not sufficient to be able to um, practice a particular idea. And that's, you know, and that's consistent with the definition, definition of what patents do. So they don't give you the right to do something. They give you the right to stop somebody from making, you know, using your little bit of innovation. 
but there's almost an assumption there that you need more than uh, what's in the patent to be able to move forward. So you need to have um, uh, some know-how to implement the, the, the IP that's in the patent, the rights that are in the patent. Um, you need to have capital to make capital investments. Uh, so it, it's, it's not as simple as just saying, I have a patent, I want to sell it. The best example of that right now is, as we're talking about this, is the discussion about what to do with uh, patents for uh, COVID vaccines. And there's the you know, somewhat controversial decision by the uh, U.S. administration to um, make IP rights available, whatever that's going to mean. There's, there's negotiations that need to happen. And um, uh, the counterpart administrations in Germany and France aren't really keen on that. Um, they want to focus more on the IP, but if you get behind that, the the the, the 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 real issue there is even if you handed somebody the patent and said, "I'm going to give this to you as a donation, no charge," going from having that in hand uh, to being able to actually make a vaccine and distribute a vaccine successfully and safely and all that is is a huge hurdle. Uh, so, so, so that's that's one of the big constraints. So, their um, uh, patents, in particular, as IP rights, are, are really useful um, with regard to the their underlying subject matter and the products to which they relate. Um, but outside that context, it may be more difficult to uh, figure out what you do with them. So, so I I, I think that's that's really part of the issue. So, so they're not um, fungible rights or a fungible asset like like cash would be, for example, that um, if you if you had cash, you can do all kinds of things with it. No one's going to ask the context in which you're trying to use it. Um, you know, so so that, that's that's one of the big challenges with creating the sort of marketplace you're talking about for IP rights. So do you potentially see potentially, I know this is quite blue sky, but within this decade or or maybe the next decade, hopefully with this within this decade, a new asset class forming where it's like this bundled asset class where you've got maybe a patent, but to your earlier point, actual tacit knowledge, real-time know-how on how to execute on that. And then within that bundle, maybe an allocation of capital, human capital, fiat capital, to actually follow through and execute on an idea and then kind of have that more packaged in a bundle and and making that more liquid and, and more attractive in the marketplace in terms of a value proposition. Do you see that as a potential future state? You know, that that is a really interesting concept. Um, so broad brush, I'd say that that happens, but it happens in the um, notion of buying or selling a business right now. So that, that, that may be too big a chunk. Um, so, uh, for example, if, if a company uh, wants to spin off a, um, one of its product lines, um, what you're talking about is pretty much what happens in that transaction, that there's a, a bundle of assets that get offered to um, a potential buyer. And, you know, if the transaction goes forward to an actual buyer and that, that includes, um, the uh, formalized intellectual property rights, patents and trademarks and copyrights and things like that. That includes know-how. That often includes manufacturing plants. It doesn't always, but uh, it often includes that. And when it includes manufacturing plants, that usually brings with it the um, the people who work in those plants who themselves have that that know-how. So that's that's kind of how that's done right now. Um, but the, the 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 notion of um, bundling that in a in a little different way and in some sort of asset that could be traded is, I think, worth taking a look at. It's it's it would it would work better in some industries than in others, um, but um, yeah, that's that that would be an interesting concept to follow up on. And you you're talking about you mentioned the word fungible a few minutes ago, so I was curious. Being close to the market and being a, being a deep practitioner in this space, what are your thoughts on on how blockchain and in in specific 
non-fungible tokens. So I don't know if you're familiar with the terms NFT. Actually, there's a there's a patent on yes. an NFT marketplace called OpenSea. I think it I think it went online literally this week. One of the mm-hmm. first one in history. So, what's your opinion on tokenization of the asset using blockchain NFT technology to make patents or other types of IP more liquid and tradable and more transparent? What's your professional opinion on on that? kind of emergent trend that that is something that um again it's something to really think about the 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 ideal place to use that i think at least at least as i'm thinking about it now and based on my understanding of that would be to focus on either this bundle of rights that you were talking about that includes some of the less formalized ip rights you know so, so for, for 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 patent um Anybody in the world can go find copies of patents that are issued in any, any country, and then you just need to uh, translate it if, if if it's not in a language that you understand to understand what the scope is. So 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 that part um, probably doesn't need to have something um, that ties into blockchain to to uh, verify or validate what it is. Um, that would be different though um, if you have a pool of know-how, uh, which would be represented by documents, electronic documents, for example, that you'd want to uh, verify the authenticity and the origin of. And then as you pass that through um, the chain of commerce, be able to verify completeness of, of all that. That's that's something I could see using blockchain type technologies to, to, to help foster. To, to show that the origin really was a the, the source you think it was, and that as it moves through the chain, that the this this package that you have has been transmitted unaltered along the way. So 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 that that sort of thing could potentially be useful um, if you were to say buy and sell bundles of IP rights that included um, something like the uh, know-how or trade secret information. Did you? Do you see anything like that emerging soon? Do you think that that's a clear unmet need or having some form of immutable ledger and it's time stamped? Just obviously there's so much conjecture around this topic right now, specifically in the last two or three weeks. I think that's down to a number of macro reasons, but it it seems to be moving quick from what I from what we can assess. We could be wrong, but it, it seems like it's picked up some compelling velocity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's, it's something that you could add in a security layer to um, prohibit um, uh, transfer to certain parties downstream without permission of the the originator. So I'm thinking something that's more like a classic license that says, I'm transmitting this information to you, um, the, the buyer or the licensee, um, and you could use it for your purposes but you cannot uh, sell it or further license it without my permission. Um, so th- that would be interesting, but that, that's something co- coming back to this um, COVID uh, vaccine situation, that um, if there were a good vehicle um, like that, that, that maybe included some blockchain for a company like a Pfizer or, or Moderna, um, or one of the other companies that, that are working on the vaccines to bundle up their know-how and be able to communicate that to um, a, a counterpart in an area that, that they want to serve. And you know, I'll, I'll pick India, for example, because India has a pretty um, uh, robust pharma uh, uh, community and technology base that you, know, you think that they'd be a place that uh, could use that. But you wouldn't necessarily want that information to flow beyond India to some other place that you might have some concerns about, uh, say Russia, um, because you don't want knockoffs coming out of Russia. So um, you, you so so you, so you want to transmit your your bundle of information in a way that uh, you can identify it's it's complete. Uh, the recipient can confirm the origin. And if there's this security tail on it that that to, to prevent further distribution beyond that, that that would be really interesting and actually might be able to facilitate 
um, that sort of IP transfer um, transaction. Fascinating. I think this topic we could talk about for hours because it's definitely in a, an emerging debate for sure. So, so George, thank you for that. So switching lanes slightly and, and, and one other kind of, kind of commonly talked about phrase, what is best in class innovation culture? I mean, we've probably all read so many different points of view on this topic, different schools of thought. But in your professional experience over the years across so many different industries, what are the traits of companies who are who share a great innovation culture and execute well? Have you kind of kind of whittled it down to certain types of traits and and kind of certain type of patent recognition you've noticed over the years on on companies who are world class at building out a strong innovation culture? And if so, what what does that look like? Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I I do have certainly some some thoughts on that. Um, part of it comes back to uh, the an overall understanding or uh, of the value of um, uh, innovation. So at least maybe put innovation first and put IP to the side because IP would be kind of how you um, identify and formally protect innovation. But um, a, a culture that uh, identifies the uh, desirability of um, innovation uh, from all levels of, of management, so from the, the top um, down through the, the whole organization. So um, everybody understands and, you know, quote, gets it as far as what, what you're trying to do and ideally gets it in a way that they could articulate the value um, ultimately of what they're working on and why, and, and not just that, but why they're working on it and why it's a benefit to, to their enterprise and, um, you know, potentially to society at large. So, 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 so that, that helps because that's the, um, sort of the, the marching orders. We need to be innovative, go to it. Um, but it's, it's more than that. It's the, it's the permission to do it. It's the resources to do it. And then um, that motivates the, the individuals who are in that environment to actually be innovative. Um, and then the, the, the question is, one, once you have that innovation going on, um, how, how to capture it in a way that makes sense? So, 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 so that's, I, I think, overall, um, the, how to capture it is, a, is kind of an interesting topic because um, I've been involved with some companies that are very innovative, um, but they're innovative for their uh, clients on a for hire type basis. So they're more the consultant or think tank sorts of things that they're not trying to be innovative uh, for, uh, for, for, for their own sake, except to um, keep, their, keep that part of the business model going. Um, but they're not trying to capture IP around it because that's something that they hand off to their customers. And then there's the, the other ones who uh, take the view that they're uh, very you know, proprietary and try to keep as much of the IP for themselves as, as they can. And there's a business model around that, what, what the value is. Um, but uh, you know, regardless of, of, of those sorts of uh, situations, what you do with the IP, it, it, it helps to have the, the the management push and the the understanding at all at all relevant business levels of what you're doing, why you're doing it, and what the benefit of the innovation is. Great, and and more at a leadership level. So looking at the C-suite and kind of at business unit leadership level, do you find that kind of juggling of growth and profitability and trying to build a culture. What types of industries have you seen do that well? So where you've got the executives, especially in public companies, driving towards a quarterly number, but at the same time, trying to chase down this interim or long-term goal on product innovation, building a great innovative culture. Have you seen best examples of that balancing act? And if so, how have they pulled that off? Because I always we always observe that one as a, as a tough one to pull off. Yeah, so so there are some companies that um, are inherently really good at it, and uh, I was uh, I'll, I'll talk about um, a company in or companies in the 
um, the, the technology or um, IT electronics type space. So I'll, I'll pick Apple as one, but but they're you know Samsung similar, where they um, part of their business model is to introduce new products or new generations of products um, annually. So they're constantly looking for this churn of what's new and what's great, so so they could sell sell more product and they try and sell the the next best phone, the next best this, the next best that, and keep the cycle going. So if you're doing that, you're inherently focused on um, innovation because you need to have a pipeline um, going that stretches back a few years. So um, you can, with a high degree of predictability, um, as, as a manager, say, yes, every year I'm going to have something new and great that I can um, introduce and then pitch to customers as as um, something they should buy. So, so those those types of companies are inherently innovative like that. Um, I think companies that um, don't have that sort of cycle, and I'll think um, uh, midterm to long term cycle companies, say uh, car companies, for example, where uh, there, there's a history of introducing new models, but um, that might not be an every year thing. That might be every three years, five years, six, you know, or whatever. You know, so some 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 longer cycle on that. Who um, may at some point, and certainly looking back in time, um, take their eye off the innovation goal and focus more on other issues. So um, back in the history of the automotive industry. There's been a focus on, well, let's be a financial company and, all, and sell our product by having very low uh, loan rates or um, uh, very attractive leases. And we, we move product based on that. And we don't necessarily need to be terribly innovative. We don't have to have the latest and greatest. We just have, have to have a price that customers are willing to pay. And when you get in that mode, you, you can see that there are companies that have ended up getting left behind um, uh, over time because they, they really haven't um, thought about um, improving the products. They, they, they may, may be, some of them may be innovative in other ways. They may be innovative in, uh, in the manufacturing area and um, lowering manufacturing costs and all that. But, um, but that's, that's you know, another extreme. But I, I think that's, that's a little bit less so now in, um, and because people are focused on, you know, IP rights on innovation overall, and there's uh, a lot of change dynamics that are that are going on. Um, you know, for all, the automotive industry, there's the the uh, projected switch over to electric vehicles. And there's there's a lot of um, an invention that really needs to happen um, to make that a reality. So okay. You, you can build an electric car now and you could drive an electric car, um, but batteries really need to be better. Uh, batteries need to be less expensive. Um, you need to have more mobile charging stations. You need to figure out how to uh, create an electric grid that is going to be able to uh, support that level of distributed um, electricity demand. And that, you know, that, those, those are the things that don't really exist right now. Um, you know, people have ideas about them, you know, but so, so that's driving a lot of innovation through a lot of um, uh, sort of old line manufacturing type companies. Um, uh, so, so, so that's, that's kind of how, how I'd see it. So it's, um, you know, there are some companies that are inherently there, some not necessarily, but I, I think there, there's some trends that at least right now are driving a big focus on innovation. And, and, and obviously, we're also seeing most businesses, even really traditional businesses, George, in time, well, some of the traditional ones, bless them, trying to become a software company. And then if you look at the FANG group, the famous group, they basically are a software company and a company built off network effects, in essence, Metcalfe's law. But... When it comes to IP and software, we still find that area really messy, really muggy. When we speak to our community in the space, no one really understands what's going on. Where do you think we are in terms of creating a, a robust framework and system which can effectively 
protect novelty, which is more intangible, like software, rather than a physical asset, like a, a design of a of a PC monitor or, or a microphone or or a, or a or a seat in a car, but actually protect maybe an algorithm within a piece of software or or a a line of code, like. Where do you think we are on that front? Because it seems really fragmented and messy right now, but is clearly a big need in the market. Yeah, that that's that is a a, a major challenge now, and you know, especially here in in the U.S., the um, patentability of straight out software and algorithms is is kind of questionable based based on um, a number of court decisions. Um, so if, if you uh, uh, incorporate the uh, the software into a tangible product, as you're talking about, then you can um, you know, have a high likelihood of being able to protect it. But that's not protecting the 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 software or the algorithm itself. So that that's 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 hard. Um, there you know, historically has been some use of copyright to protect that, but we recently had the decision in the um, the, uh, the Google and Oracle case at the U.S. Supreme Court um, that uh, puts a big question mark around the utility of copyright uh, protection um, uh, for, for for software. So so I, I think what we're going to see is is a big struggle uh, to um, look for effective ways of, of protecting um, uh, software, in, uh, but at the same time being able to, to market it. You know, so so the thing that comes to mind there mostly on, under the, the current framework we have is is trade secret, um, which means you need to basically keep the information secret and and not share it broadly, which is uh, sort of contra to a lot of trends in the software industry that. Um, Look uh, either to open innovation or um, you know uh, more open source uh, code and open licensing and things like that. But you know that in, in that world, it's it's really hard to protect your innovation. So I I, I think there is that trade secrets and that to me suggests more closed type systems um, or you know, systems that to the extent they appear to be open are open only because they have uh, software that's licensed to them under fairly restrictive rules. So I think that's kind of where we are for, 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 for the moment. It's a little bit different in other parts of the world that have um, a little better access to patent protection for uh, 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 software implemented in inventions. Um, but even in areas that are currently a little more a little more patent friendly, um, along those lines, still still run into limitations. That if you just get down to the algorithm side, that's not really protectable as such by patents. Um, so so yeah, that 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 particular topic has been an issue as long as I've been uh, practicing in the IP arena, you know, and before that, and I think it's going to keep on going. There there really hasn't been a really good durable answer um, to that. Um, but having said that, uh, there's tremendous innovation in that space, and um, you know, so it, and that's either uh, based on what limited protections there are, or the the the, the other other concept um, to think about. And, and I and I do talk to clients about about this is to really understand um, what your business cycle is. If it's a very fast moving business cycle. Um, is it something that uh, you can effectively get protection by having a first mover advantage? And by the time um, someone gets around to copying what you're doing, uh, you're on to the next generation or two generations down the road. And if you can live in a world like that, and you know some businesses can, a lot of businesses can't, but if you can live in a world like that, then part of your protection is just to uh, focus on very rapid innovation and keep obsoleting your um, older innovations. See, this is interesting and interesting, but also a concern because there was a famous fra phrase coined in 2011 and, and boy, was he right. Mark Andreessen uh, famously said, software's eating the world 10 years on. 
he was bloody right. Like you look at the market cap, all the players, you look at fundamentally companies like a Tesla, it's a software business, it's an iPhone on wheel on wheels, really. And that's now like accelerating beyond recognition. You can see what's happening around digital assets. I know people talk about Bitcoin every minute on CNBC, but putting Bitcoin aside, just this new era of web 2.0, which was the internet of information. Great. We've done spectacular on, on that paradigm, but we're now entering an era, which is, which was the original promise of the internet, the internet of value where value is digitally exchanged across all types of asset classes. You're looking at smart contracts, different forms of currency, which is digital, non-physical. So as we're accelerating into that world where software just eats into literally everything, isn't this a, isn't this a big concern on protecting novelty? And could it potentially make the classic patent system really inefficient and in time potentially redundant and, and not really relevant in a modern world which is driven by the software layer i think that's a, that's a possibility and and, and, and i think you're, there, there are a couple threads so, so you, you mentioned tesla and tesla being like like an iphone on wheels so um Part of what Apple has done in their iPhone environment, you know, and going beyond that to um, their, their their Mac environment also, is, is they've been relatively closed as far as letting other folks in. So you can get on and you use systems, you know, so there, there are elements that, that you can play off of that. But if you want to get into, you know, deep into the software side of it, that's that's something that they protect very, very jealously. And and I believe Tesla is the, the same sort of thing, that it's a... Um, for them, it's largely a closed environment that they they control, and that's that's how they protect innovation. Um, and you add to that that this notion that they um, protect their innovation by having a closed environment, but they introduce new features, new devices rapidly. So they're constantly reinventing. So 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 I, I think those types of businesses are are, are the ones that. Um, at least in, in the environment that's going to be very software driven are, are the ones that um, will, 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 will prosper because they've figured out how to do that. Um, the, on, on the side of um, uh, uh, open innovation or open systems, I think it's a little bit harder to um, see how you, how you do that, um, although that's not impossible. I mean, the, the contrary to that would be Take a look at Google and the Android operating system for um, their their electronic devices. That's that's a much more open system, and they have a, a different, a little different business model as far as how they uh, get value out of it. And and a lot of that has to do with their size and reach. Um, now, what you, what you see across all of those areas, though, and 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 you're uh, you're seeing this with the uh, the Apple Epic lawsuit that's going on this week is in uh, and what you're and some of the stuff coming out of Europe is you bump into antitrust laws um, or at least people making antitrust type assertions you know uh, you know I'll, I'll leave it open as to whether anybody's actually violated any any laws there but uh, boy that that's kind of the, the backlash that you're kind of too big and we need to break you up or we need to control you or need to do something and that's that's the kind of backlash that you get um, but I, I think with the, the 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 topic you're raising is part of the reason um, those businesses and I'll and you can this, this is you, you mentioned the Fang businesses so it's part of, it's it's them and, and some others um, have the are the size that they are um, is because they need to be able to exercise control over their space but show at least some aspect of what they're doing so they're kind of open themselves to copying um, and they take various measures to control their environment. And that's, that leads to that, this, the antitrust backlash. This is a fascinating one, George. We're really looking at this closely here at PatSnap, George. I'll, I'll give you one other sector, which you might be close to as well. So if you look at 
the next gen biotech companies. So the likes of a, a Moderna, Mammoth Biosciences, Intellia Therapeutics, all spectacular next gen biotech businesses. Their business models are, are very much like a software company. So they have this core IP asset. And then they then build out a software layer, which enables external organizations, other biotechs, other players within the ecosystem to build on top of their platform. No different from what some of the fan guys have done or done really openly in the early years and slightly closed it up, but still are very open in, in certain regards and people build on top of the platform. So do you see that as a future across all markets? It's already happening in life sciences, which has surprised a few folks. And, and boy, are those companies moving quick and creating an immense amount of value. So we one day get to a point where IP is fundamentally open and you can use technologies like cryptography, timestamping, blockchain to accrue that value back to the originator. Hence why they're open and they don't need a patent because the technology tracks the value creation and programmatically can accrue it back to the originator. So no one's upset. We're seeing that in life sciences already. So do you see a future state where we're, we're living in that world across all major industries like automotive life sciences, the chemical space? Is that something you guys are observing or are you, are you, are you familiar with, with that type of model? Um, yeah, so, so familiar with it um, in our, we work largely with uh, very traditional businesses who've not really seen that too much right now. Um, but there, there are clearly changes. So, so that this notion of, um, being able to build on a platform and connect into the um, platform um, to provide additional functionality that, um, but then still be able to change something back to, to the, the originator is is a really interesting concept. Uh, so 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 biotech is is fascinating. I think in the in the chemical space that's that's something that um, is is a possibility. Um, uh, it helps to be in a space where there's pretty rapid innovation. So, so you could um, build the value on that and continue to innovate and then maybe push out a platform and have others innovate around that. So not, not all businesses are great fit. So um, on the surface, I'd say cars may not be a great fit for that, but I'll say not yet. Um, so uh, there, there's a, um, I think a, a trend in a lot of the big car companies to want to create very large closed environments. So, so you, you kind of alluded to this um, earlier on in the call where the, the car companies seem to want to become software companies or along the lines of what Tesla has done. Um, but that doesn't necessarily need to be. Um, for example, um, uh, if, if a car company said, you know, we really don't need to be the software creators. We just need to have a platform that will allow the software to run and to improve our um, our devices. Um, and we'll uh, open that platform to innovators. Maybe we'll have a safety check on top of it to be sure that what happens is, is safe. Um, but we'll op open that to innovation. Um, so I'd say, Think about like the Apple App Store, for example, which you know, of course is the that Epic versus Apple antitrust case right now, or on the on the uh, the, the Android side, that's that's a little bit more open. But but I, I could see a car company like a um, like a, a Ford or a Toyota or something like that, um, allowing open you know, some open innovation on um, their platform, and and possibly even. Um, opening up their vehicles for um, additional equipment that can add on, but can connect right into the vehicle system. So if you put an accessory on, there's a port that you connect in and it runs through the um, uh, overall uh, vehicle control system. So you 
display something about your new device on the those nice screens that all car that that all cars have these days. You don't need something subsidiary. So I I can absolutely see something like that happening. It's just that hasn't quite gotten there yet. But I, I um, could see someone coming up with a business model around that. How far do you think we are, George? So just having some fun with this. If you were to place a bet this decade or two three years, I was just just curious. Yeah, I. I... I think we're probably a little ways off on that, um, unless unless somebody who's a serious player in that space um, uh, says, "I'm I'm just going to take a risk. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to create this platform. I'm going to provide the basic transportation, the basic functionality. I'm going to provide the ability to sort of after you buy the product to accessorize it yourself." but plug those accessories in in a way they operate integrally with, with the product. So that's a combination of software and hardware. Um, and perhaps they offer some of that themselves, or maybe they license some, but then they open it to others. At the moment, I, I don't see that, that any company is really that keen on it because they want to dominate that themselves um, and have their own uh, integrated uh, product. But I, I could see that. Um, you know, one other area that I could see it for sure, and this this is something that may be driven more by customer than by the um, manufacturers, would be in the um, defense industry, um, where you know, the, the the history there is, um, you know, the defense in, the defense industry sells. You know, super highly engineered products to to a, a country's military, um, and they're at the time that they're innovative. That, you know, that they may be state of the art, but because of the high cost of updating and maintaining, they tend to get old. But they tend to stay in service forever and ever. And I'm thinking of the classic example in the U.S. is the B-52 bomber. That you know, the original designs were from the late 1940s. The Current fleet that's flying was built in the early 1960s, so at this point it's about 60 years old, and looks like it's going to be in service for another 20 to 30 years, or perhaps longer. It, it, it may hit a century in service, which is just absolutely incredible for something like that. Um, but if you take a look at what's what's happening, is um, those those products have been updated over time um, more by by need than um, any notion of rapid innovation. But the concepts of rapid innovation are starting to be looked at for some of the newer generation products in which the customer there, so that this would be the Department of Defense or the Ministry of Defense, depending on which country you're in, is saying, yeah, I recognize when I buy the platform that this is a long, long-term investment. I'm buying a platform that's going to be fielded for you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years or something like that. But I needed to remain relevant in an era of rapid innovation, especially in the IT and electronic space, um, and potentially other sorts of things coming down the road. Um, so I, I need a platform that is easy to make changes to or easy to add on to, as opposed to the, the classic ones where everything is built and hardwired to do one particular function well, and modifying it to do something different is hard. So I think there you have a customer, the only customer for those products, that has a lot of heft pushing back down to their suppliers and directing them to think about how to do that, this, how to create open platforms. So, so, so that's a different dynamic, but I think that's, that's, that's an example of if that you know, flows over into more of the, um, the general commercial world would, would have an impact as well. So that it's it's just a real interesting you know, hole between different different thoughts about how um, how to grow, how to be innovative, how to capture value around the innovation, and um, there's there, there's I think there's a real opportunity over the next ten plus years to see a lot of changes in how things are are done for sure. And George, obviously you've touched upon open innovation throughout your descriptions, and we and this all links to kind of bringing in external 
players and wider ecosystems into product development. But open innovation is a term which has been absolutely butchered in the last decade. And everyone talks about it, everyone's around it, underneath it. Some people who talk about it don't actually really do it. And the ones who do really do it don't really talk about it publicly. They just do it. So that, that's what we've seen. It, it's a mixture. But wh where do you think we are on, on that chapter on open innovation truly being like one of the best in class methodologies to innovate well and efficiently in terms of are we in the second innings, third innings? Where, where do you think we really are across all industries generally? in the major markets in your professional opinion from what you see oh yeah i i i think we're we're really early in that so i i've been in um a bunch of businesses that have have talked about it um in part because it's the buzzword out there and the the engineering organizations um have uh, uh get introduced to it by people going to conferences that talk about the value of open innovation and then you know the engineering vps come back and say hey we've got to do open innovation to get new ideas in here and blah 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 uh, so so yeah I, I, i've been through that the the big challenge and, the, and this kind of circles all the way back to where we began about how you have an innovative company um you need the the buy-in across multiple levels of an organization to really make that work um, so, so you can say you want to do open innovation and maybe even do one or two pilots on it. Um, but if that's not part of your DNA, so to speak, that you're really, really looking out across the, the broadest spectrum possible for new ideas and asking yourself, how do I implement those? How do I bring those on board? Do I do it the traditional way? I look for a small startup that's operating that area and I buy them. So I basically buy all the IP and um, the, their employees become my employees and I've incorporated them. So that's, that's a real classic way to do it. Um, or do I have some other method of doing it? The, the stumbling block that I've seen is a lot of companies um, have a not invented here syndrome. It's like, well, it's really nice that so-and-so has that idea, but that's not how we do it here. Or but we had an idea kind of like that five years ago and it didn't really work out because, and yada, 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 and not even asking whether the, the current version of that new idea fixes the, the reasons why you couldn't incorporate it five, 10 years ago or something. So, so, so those are, that's a huge level of inertia for most organizations and, and even organizations that, that are themselves small and innovative, you know, um, integrally. Uh, to look outside and, and really invite new ideas in and figure out how to incorporate them. So that, 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 that is a huge, huge challenge. And part of the fundamental challenge is just human nature. Now, look, I, I, I'm an expert at knowing what I know. No one else knows what I know. So what do I have to learn from them? So that's, that, that is, 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 I think, the biggest hurdle. Is there particular sectors who are nudging slightly ahead and doing that well? Any any emergent markets where you think, oh, you guys are getting it right and you've kind of got over that psychological barrier of not invented here? Because I see it all the time too as well, George. So we're on the same page. But is there any emerging sectors where you go, yeah, God, they're getting there? Yeah, you know, uh, on, on something that would really look, look like real, real open innovation, I I can't think of one that has really been that successful. And I, I've been on a bunch of innovation platforms where companies put out the problem they need to be solved and they offer rewards, sometimes very significant um, uh, amounts of money, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for people who can solve the problems. But that's not share that this out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would truly be impacted by today's to, episode. Until next time, continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious. The way that's been done most successfully to now is um, by targeted acquisitions. Um, so the, the companies that recognize they have a gap in their technology portfolio or gap in their product portfolio who are um, constantly scouting for um, uh, other companies, you know, startups and, and, and others uh, who might be able to plug that and bring that innovation in-house by basically buying the company or 
buying all the IP that goes goes with it. Um, I think that's that's probably the where it happens the most right now. The the the, the, the truly open innovation thing is. Um, it, I think it, it just gets stuck, and even the people, even where you're the most open-minded to it, is it's just really hard to integrate somebody else's concept into what you're working on without such a concerted effort that you get to the point of essentially, you know, buying that that technology. So that that's that's that that that's that's a big challenge. But but I think the the opportunity still remains out there. And something that should be explored, um, especially in those situations where you know, uh, an enterprise recognizes maybe it wants to be innovative, but the current setup isn't really focused on innovation. It's focused on um, efficient product delivery or efficient service delivery or something like that, which is which which is which is great. But if if they want to take a leap into something else, they they need to think about how to um, bring some dynamic from outside their enterprise into it, and you know, figure out how that works. But I, 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 you know, that's that just strikes me as as a continual challenge. And I, I don't know of anybody who's done that all that well. Yeah, that's fair, George. We see similar things. Sadly, it's people who are the problem <laughs> in those scenarios. Where it is that that not invented ear mentality, God, it's still very strong in the marketplace, um, for sure. But fingers crossed, we we do nudge the needle uh, in the coming years. You, you mentioned platforms, George. We've seen a couple as well over the years. I've kind of went to their websites. Sometimes have registered. Have you had direct experience with those kind of online platforms, which create like an eBay of innovation in the past, or? Do you see a future state? Because I've seen so many come and go. Have you had any positive experiences with that? And what does the future look like on one day having truly having a an accepted Amazon for innovation where you just go online and you can shop around for external technologies and, and do it swiftly and effectively? I mean, what's your what's your thoughts on that one? Yeah, that's so I I, I, I have had some direct experience with that. I, I've, I've been um you know, in, in the in the past, the companies that have said yes, we're 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 going to do this. We're going to um, pick you know, what whatever the platform du jour is. You know, the, the, those folks are always going around trying to sell themselves to to folks. Um, and we've we've looked or we've posted challenges, and you know, you get things that are somewhat interesting, and they're, you know, it it you know it it, it might be helpful. The the challenge, well, actually, so there's there's maybe two challenges. So, so, so part of that is the the, the not invented here. Um, that you you say you you're open to innovation, but eh, maybe maybe not. Or you're open into into um, open innovation only if it comes from the right people. Um, so the right university or the the right external organization. Um, but the 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 other challenge is. A lot of times, the the ideas that could be really good ideas are not packaged in a way to make them all that useful to you. So it's an idea, and you look at it, say, like, "Yeah, okay, I got it. That's not what we're doing right now. It might be something we could think about, but we're going to have to put a lot of resources into uh, modifying that so it fits into whatever our product is, whether that's a software product or a hardware product or a, you know." hybrid or something like that. Uh, so I don't know, is, is that worth it uh, versus us doing what we're doing? Um, or it's the, that's a really good idea, but there's a bundle of IP rights that we would need to be able to execute that and we don't have access to that. So, so that's, you know, that's, that's, that's almost, um, even if you are open to it, you run into the, I, I can't make it fit so well. So it's, Kind of like if I um, got an airplane and flew from the U.S. over to the U.K. and I brought my electronics with me, but I forgot my converter plug. Um, I could, you know, try try as I, I want. I can't take my U.S. style electric plug and plug it into an outlet in the U.K. and make it work. I, I need a converter plug to to make that work. 
you know, it's it's it, it, it sounds simple, but that's that's part of the challenge too. That um, the for the innovation, you know, the outside innovation to be effective, it has to be presented in a way that you know fits into what the the potential acquiring organization is looking for. It has to be packaged in a certain way, or it has to be adapted to work in a certain environment, or you know, those those sorts of things. And if not, it's it's the 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 other difficulty in doing something is it's it's an idea, but it's an idea that needs a lot of engineering to make it really useful. So so that that's 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 another real challenge also. Um, and I don't know, there there's I, I could think of some ways around that, um, but uh, that that would require folks to be more express about what they're looking for, about what interface they want something to work with. Um, or have um, uh, uh, use use some sort of standard interface that your idea needs to be compatible with XYZ standard interface or uh, XYZ just standard, and then uh, once I have that, I know how to incorporate it. But that's so that's 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 another level of challenge um, to all that. Yeah, we see that too. That it's the ones who have tried and, and fair play, they've tried. They haven't got their arms around the nuance, right? Like each case is so different. So mm -hmm. it, yeah. we kind of would share your sentiment as well. If there was some form of standardization and then you work within that framework and if that framework's a compelling fit, then you can charge forward and and maybe ingest some technology in a bite-sized fashion and, and kind of take it in baby steps and go from there rather than trying to boil the ocean and trying to do an entire piece of technology transfer online in, the, in a kind of consumerized fashion. So yeah, we're seeing kind of some, some of that play out as well. But but George, this has been a, a, a brilliant talk. Oh God, we could go on for hours, but we've covered some brilliant areas here. So slightly going off piece here now uh, and having a bit of fun. So in terms of, basically this is our quick fire round. So in terms of books most gifted or, or you highly recommend to read, what are your what are your top two reads you'd recommend to our audience? Ooh, uh, you kind of hit a, a, a weak spot for, for, for me in that. So I'm, I'm not uh, big into technology books. I, I'm a real history buff. So if, if you ran down the list of history books, I, 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 I can do that. So sure, go for it. <laughs> OK, well, so the. Uh, um, Ones, ones that I've been uh, looking at recently, I, I tend to um, like uh, uh, Roman history in particular, and there's a, a whole series, actually this, this is an intriguing series. So, so it start at, starts out as Roman, then goes forward by uh, Tom Holland. Um, it starts with uh, uh, Rubicon. So this is you know, the, the classic story of uh, Caesar and, and the, the end of the Roman Republic and the beginning of the empire. But then he moves forward to um, a book that is uh, focused on kind of the, the end of the Roman Empire and the uh, beginning of other things. So the, the, the um, rise of Islam and the um, Arab conquest of what was, uh, what was part of the Roman Empire. So there's that. And then he has a third one to, to finish it up that takes things up to about a thousand AD and takes a look at what's going on at that point. So, so that's a little different view of, of history with the continuities and discontinuities that occur in, in that case over about a thousand years or so. So that, that, that to me is something that's kind of fascinating. And actually, in a sense, I guess it plays back into technology because um, it, there's been this history of the continuity and discontinuities and, and you, um, can view those as as points of um, innovate, especially the points of discontinuity as points of innovation. So, you know, so if you go back to the start of the industrial revolution and look at the different cycles, I, I think you'll you'll see something like that. So that's and of course that's that actually would you know, there's there's plenty written about that too. But that that that's that's kind of what I'm focused on now. And last question. Extra, extraterrestrial life form, believer or non-believer, and why? Oh, um, I'm going to say I am completely agnostic about that. Um, so it's—I I think there's 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 possibility, um, 
you know, there's there's intriguing uh, hints that that come up about about something. Um, I guess the, the the big challenge is uh, if there are if there is extraterrestrial life, and of course, it's, I mean, what do you mean by that? So I'm going to assume intelligent extraterrestrial life. Um, is it is it close by that we can have contact to and know something about? In, in which case, we can answer the question yes or no. Uh, if, but if it's so far away that there's no plausible opportunity to have contact with it, then I don't know. That that's that's kind of the uh, metaphysical question. Um, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? I don't know. You don't don't really know because you're you're not there to sense it. So I'll, I'll, I'm 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 um, open either either way on that. It'd be really interesting if if uh, something show if you know we had contact and and figured that out um and if not then i guess we keep going speculating about it and it's uh an opportunity to create some marvelous stories about the possibility brilliant george well thank you for that and and we really appreciate your perspectives here on innovation capital so it's been great connecting with you and looking forward to hopefully part two one day and and you have an awesome weekend cheers george Okay, th thank you. This was, this was great and um, um, uh, look forward to uh, uh, seeing the results. And there you have it for today's interview with George Romanik, everyone. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I want to first of all thank George for taking time out of his schedule and sharing his amazing wisdom with us today. And also thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoyed it, you went through the whole episode, we want to give you something for doing so. If you're wanting to spark an impactful discussion around innovation within your organization, then we have just the thing for you. You can download your copy of our free ebook, The Connected Innovation Intelligence Blueprint. In this report, we explore what connected innovation intelligence is and how the world's top disruptors are using it to grow, compete, and win in a hyper competitive world and to download this free copy of this amazing ebook all you have to do is go to patsnap.com forward slash blueprint to get your copy today again that is patsnap.com forward slash blueprint if you enjoyed today's episode also hit that subscribe button leave a rating and review if you want to see a guest on here or have a guest recommendation feel free to write in we'd be happy to hear it we will be back with another episode soon until then continue to embrace your childlike wonder and stay curious